quick forward to God complex, about a week after posting the first episode, I realized I'd made a large contextual omission that reminded me of some problems we had in Mensplaining Mensa, the first series, which were the overwhelming and seemingly pointless negativities. I want to say that I mean every negative thing I say, um, but all of it has a positive purpose, to encourage people to choose media that challenges expectations. You'll find that in each episode, one of the pieces will be lesser than the other. That piece tends to oversimplify the human experience. The more popular something is, the more likely it does not challenge expectations. If it did, it wouldn't be popular. Of course, there are strange chimera, like say the band Nirvana, but that's relatively unusual and deserving of a different kind of analysis. That's why you'll often hear me call things lazy or irresponsible, because uniformity leads to stagnancy and, well, defects. In the same way, too much uniformity in genetic reproduction causes aberrant traits. Yes, I'm talking about incest, and just as it was not easy to study and analyze the nature of incest and birth defects, it is not easy to detect creative incest and the corresponding defects in the resultant media. So each episode I will try to highlight the positive human reason I rail so hard against what I rail against. I will organize that better in the future, but for the first episode I have this foreword and I will place an epilogue at the end, uh, specifically identifying an example of the gross kind of person that can result from an overindulgence in lesser media, in this case, Avengers. Hi everybody! Welcome to episode one of God Complex. Uh, the topic today will be Avengers Infinity War versus The Leftovers, which was a show on HBO. The title of this podcast used to be Mensplaining Mensa because we originally thought we could talk about Mensa forever. Huge overestimation, so we decided to change the title to something broader, The Ivory Glower, which is also the title we use in our social mediums and the web's pages. So the five previous episodes of the Ivory Glower podcast are about Mensa and form the first season, so to speak. But you don't need to listen to the first season before jumping into our current season, which is titled God Complex, because I discuss media that portrays the afterlife. Specifically, the focus is on afterlife narratives in which protagonists move from living to dead and navigate that passage in some sense. So unfortunately, cool things like Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, and say Good Omens, among many other works, will have to wait for another time. In each episode, I will contrast two pieces of media, one that is commercially pandering and one that is less so and then explain why the sitcom The Good Place fails more thoroughly than either of them. And this will go toward answering a question I get a lot, uh, which is, why do you dislike The Good Place so much? Ground rules. In general, I'm only interested in exceptional media. Uh, one of my friends supplied a nice metaphor that I'm basically sifting for gold, and the rest goes in the dumpster, where one person's trash may become another person's treasure. Sure. Uh, but this podcast is about the gold and not the trash. So you'll find I have a negative opinion of most media because by definition, most media is not exceptional. Uh, I hope to balance that a little by talking about 
things I like as well in each episode. But um, to be honest, it'll probably be mostly vitriol. Sorry. Uh, I also speak from the perspective of a wannabe amateur creator of media, so I focus on uh, novel, challenging, maybe controversial themes in what I consume, which is a different perspective than what most people focus on, because again, by definition, most people like popular media and commodity. Um, now, if you're someone who uh, pretends or hopes to one day uh, contribute to uh, the media sphere, you naturally have to think uh, in a way that's different than what's already out there. You have to look at what's exceptional. And I find that's kind of a kind of a rare perspective sometimes. Not that there's anything, you know, uh, innately superior about being a wannabe creator. So here is an out, though, for those who feel who may feel slighted. Uh, if you consume media like most people, that is, you do it for fun and relaxation, and it's not a major part of your life, and you don't talk, think, write about it obsessively, then you don't look at it in the same context that I do. So you shouldn't feel like I'm criticizing you or what you like or how you consume it. And these ideas aren't for everyone and needn't necessarily be synthesized into your own outlook. So my old friend Nostradamus is back from last season. Some listeners had difficulty understanding Nostradamus in previous episodes, so this won't be as much fun, but I'll just be reading his responses in my own voice. So, uh, Nostradamus, your thoughts on Avengers Infinity War? Uh, He says, Avengers Infinity War makes Garfield look like McCavity the Mystery Cat. Hmm. Okay, thanks, Nostradamus. Ineffable, as usual. Uh, I won't spend too much time recapping plot since some of these pieces are relatively well-known, like Avengers. And as I'll explain, plot is not crucial to me. Uh, Unlike the first season of this podcast, I'm going to try to avoid generalities, which is hard for me because, you know, maths. Uh, I probably won't be able to avoid them entirely, though. And about spoilers, I can't really avoid them, so here's your warning. My perspective on spoilers is I don't care about being spoiled. At a certain point, exceptionality requires more than mere plot twists, aka things that can be spoiled. So if I hear all about a plot, even if it is a bullshit magic trick plot by M. Night Shyamalan or Chris Nolan, I don't care if I hear it because superficial surprise is not important to me, especially when it is unearned, like in most Chris Nolan movies. What distinguishes quality media, then, to me, is a surprise of a different kind. Let's call it, for lack of a better term, uh, emotional thematic delight. Uh, that sounds horrible. but um, Which is when, uh, you can probably guess, the entirety of a work comes together to deliver a, a subtle punch that is remarkable and, in rare cases, novel, and most importantly, is not something that can be spoiled. In other words, there are experiences that, even when fully described or summarized, or quote-unquote spoiled, uh, defy comprehension unless you have actually experienced it. Now, good media does this. Um, And honestly, I think the most important life experiences are like this too. You can't just hear someone talk about them. You have to experience them. Uh, Not so good media you can just read about and fully know. Uh, So I highly recommend this perspective on spoilers because you'll never get spoiled again. Sickening, no? Okay, so let's do this. Point of comparison number one, how they vanish. In Avengers, Thanos gets all the magic rocks and then stones that glove with all that bling and does a finger snap 
which raptures 50% of people um, who disappear and or kind of die-ish. Um, question, though, what about dogs and animals? I mean, you'd think Thanos would want them gone too because they consume resources, but eh, that's okay. It's probably not such a big deal. Not, not really something <laughs> important enough to include in the movie, I suppose. Um, about the name Thanos, it basically means immortal in Greek, which actually up until recently, I thought his name was a play on the Greek word Thanatos, which means death. Uh, I think that would work better, but you know, whatever. The point is that I more or less respect the etymological differences uh, in Avengers, despite my feelings about Avengers as a whole. At the same time, there are plenty of cheap, superficial name drops designed to make you feel like you're not completely wasting your time. Uh, that if you just give a character a mythological namesake, that somehow elevates the work. Uh, Thanos was born on Saturn's moon Titan. Titan. And I guess that's why he's called a Titan. But you don't call a person born on Earth an Earth. Um, it's also a name drop about the titans of gr Greek mythology. I guess just because Thanos is also big and intimidating. Um, but storytellers like these who need crutches tend to sprinkle these name drops generously on their bland stories or characters to try to make them taste better. Uh, another example is the Batman villain the Riddler, whose real name is Edward or E. Nigma. Uh, it's just painfully obvious and adds nothing to a character. Um, it's kind of cool if you're if you're a kid and you're watching it and you pick up on these things and it kind of uh, spurs your early analytical thought, but uh, yeah, that's when you're a kid. Another good example, Ellen Page's character, uh, whose name is Ariadne in Chris Nolan's Inception. So you think, oh, that's a weird sounding name. So you look it up and find out that Ariadne is uh, also from Greek myth. And um, long story short, she's associated with spiders, you know, obviously, uh, mazes and labyrinths. Uh, turns out she hangs out in the same labyrinth as, as the Minotaur. Just like the Ariadne character in Inception, who likes mazes and puzzles. Uh, so uh, the name drop is also uh, one of the ways to disrespect the viewer. Uh, like when a character says something like, I can't believe you'd do this to me. You're my sister. In the first five minutes of a movie. Clumsily signaling a relationship that should become clear outside of expository dialogue. Similarly, name drops clumsily signal character traits that should be revealed in the guts of the story, not on the cast list. But this happens because they don't, they don't trust you or they're too lazy to uh, you know, ask you to deduce the information or do it in a more... Um, skilled way <laughs> sorry um so yeah so you're not trusted to make the thematic connections on your own not that okay i won't say that um so yeah they just yell ariadne at you hoping you'll look it up and be satisfied with uh, imitation cleverness in contrast you have plenty of characters in the leftovers who can be seen to have characteristics in common with mythological figures uh, for example there's a character called matt durst who is a, a Catholic person who uh, dreams a lot and um, kind of has a lot of sort of, he, he makes life decisions based on kind of intuition and what he dreams about. Sounds a lot like uh, Daniel from the Bible, but they did not name him Daniel because <laughs> they're um, more respectful of the viewer than that. You might be familiar with this mode of thought of kind of being very 
particular about naming because everyone does it when you hear <laughs> um, some friends that have a baby that just has a horrible name. Uh, it's kind of the same thing. Like certain names, uh, you know, will occur to you as being just incredibly obvious or, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so The Leftovers is actually based on a book by author Tom Parada. Uh, he also wrote a book called Mrs. Fletcher, which was turned into a great TV show on HBO as well. And uh, I highly recommend that. Uh, in The Leftovers, it's 2% of Earth's human population that vanishes in the middle of the day. No finger snaps, which is a key distinction, uh, because the Avengers uh, rapture is more about the sad wishes of a supervillain, while the Leftovers rapture remains a completely unsolved mystery for the most part, which is more compelling. One of the problems with commodified narrative is that it is constrained by what the general public will accept such as stories about the, the most important person in the world or space or Middle-earth, maybe some substantially, you know, um, maybe some explosions and finding the magic thing. The idea that a so-called quote-unquote deep movie like Inception is substantially different from other trifles is a complete illusion, but an illusion that can be convincing and tricky, uh, sometimes employing clones of Hugh Jackman even to you know trick you trick the viewer uh, you might even call them deep fakes you know meaning they rely on fooling the viewer into thinking they're watching something remarkable when it's actually just lipstick on a pig uh, if you're not familiar with deep fakes it's just like you know when people put someone else's head on a on a porno body or something you know to or, um, yeah, they did that to Hillary once. They kind of uh, manipulated video to kind of fake something that wasn't really happening. Uh, but anyway, um, you might hear this kind of movie, like Inception, called High Concept, which is uh, certainly not the same as high quality. It's a distraction. High concept does not mean high quality. And yes, Inception has some tricky concepts, but uh, tricky does not a good movie make. You also get narratively uh, boxed in in Avengers uh, because there's only so much you can do with a giant super dude who vanishes a bunch of people, especially when you compare it to a similar situation initiated by a completely unknown force, uh, like in The Leftovers. Okay, so Thanos snaps his fingers and half the people of Earth, or not just people, but superheroes and things, uh, <laughs> in the universe vanish. Actually, they turn into dust, which is a thematic and visual cliche, but also more comforting in a way than just suddenly vanishing like they do on The Leftovers. If you slowly turn into dust, you can have some last words, maybe a little closure. People see that you're going away. It's uh, kind of like playing a game of peekaboo. So Spider-Man gets to be uh, scared and say goodbye to his friend Iron Man. But in The Leftovers, you just, you just blink out, suddenly, entirely you know, like real-life death, uh, which is much more disturbing, uh, jarring, frankly realistic in a way. Uh, I mean, so Spider-Man turns into dust, and then the, the dust vanishes? Or does it blow away, or uh, what is the dust? And, and if you return from being dust, then... Anyway, it's just obvious signaling, because anything more challenging than just the broad signal of this person has sadly gone away would be too hard for uh, some viewers. And when someone vanishes in Avengers, you can tell because the dust, see? Like, if you see some dust, oh, you know. 
Because look, see, uh, you've established that a vanishing person is scared and experiences the event live. And then there are now fewer things it can mean that a person vanishes. And it's definitely a bad thing. So what dis disappearing means in The Leftovers and whether it's a bad thing or not is masterfully vague on that show, to start anyway. Okay, moving on to point of comparison number two, who vanishes? What I do give credit to Avengers for doing is making who vanishes kind of random. It's a little contrived since you can clearly determine well ahead of time the forced pairings and forced absences that they think are, are the most compelling. Also, um, why don't any of the bad guys disappear? Uh, did I just miss that? Or it, se it seems very convenient, um, which is not really a surprise. But uh, in The Leftovers, the question of who vanished is handled well in that it seems to defy any pattern analysis, despite the very human efforts to find an explanation. Uh, in fact, that, that human wish to figure out the pattern to trauma and loss is a key theme in the show. Uh, despite how sciencey the Avengers are, they seem entirely unconcerned with patterns of trauma, and that's because they're more focused on getting them, getting all the people who disappeared back. Which is weak, because what does any of it mean when they all can come back? You know, to make more money later on. Uh, so Iron Man dies and takes a step back until they make a prequel series with him, and then he. Uh, snaps to undo the Thanos snap. <sighs> in The Leftovers, nobody comes back, and this is a key difference. When you know you've lost something permanently, that's a real stake. You have to ask yourself the hard questions. If you just have to think real hard and spontaneously derive space-time equations and get some rocks together by time traveling, well, not so much at stake. And um, by the way, mucking around with time is another tired, problematic trope. I'm looking at you, Chris Nolan. So on the topic of superpowers, uh, when you insert those into a narrative, y you risk a lot. This is why a lot of superhero movies are problematic. You know, why doesn't Spider-Man avoid all danger because of his spidey sense? Why does Superman not always turn back time to solve problems like he did that one time? I think that was in the first Superman movie. Uh, Christopher Reeve. Why did Thanos not include in his snap wish that no one could reverse his snap wish? Also, uh, another distraction we're served is that Benedict Cumberbatch has, sh has shaken his head real quick and parsed all possible outcomes, all possible alternate timelines uh, through the use of the time gem. Don't you think someone like Thanos would like to know whether someone could undo his wishes? Wouldn't he like to know what, it, what that one alternate possibility that completely foils all his plans is? I mean, wouldn't he parse the possibilities when he came into possession of the time gem? I uh, guess he forgot. Fierce. But of course, we know why none of this is addressed. It would break the story. So fragile, this type of story. But if you like your narratives precariously fragile and don't want to ask crucial questions about the world in which that narrative exists, uh, that's okay, I guess. Now, you might be saying, all this stuff is fairy tales anyway, and anything goes, right? Uh, yeah, so all media requires some suspension of disbelief. I mean, even so-called realistic shows, you know, require suspension of certain kinds of, uh, you know, you make certain allowances. 
And I don't have a problem believing in a world in which superheroes exist, necessarily. In fact, there are a lot of superhero stories that are far better thought out. Um, but of course, they're not very well known, and, and they're not Marvel or DC, uh, of course. Uh, I cannot sit here, though, and pretend superheroes would not use the powers they were irresponsibly given in wild and story-breaking ways that I'm seeing as I'm sitting here watching the movie, and that they don't do these things, nor in general confront those uncomfortable questions is, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a bridge too far. I, I do want to distinguish um, these why don't so-and-sos do this uh, that I'm listing from standard nitpicking. Nitpicking to me is being fussy about details that don't actually affect the narrative significantly. You know, you have a, maybe a misplaced prop, like um, I guess they had a S Starbucks cup show up in a shot in uh, Game of Thrones, or a visible boom mic, someone's shirt changes color between shots, or the position of someone's head changes in a dialogue. Actually, that happens a, a lot if you kind of look for it. But anyway, um, yeah, maybe there are some unnecessary characters here and there, or poorly written lines, things, people, you know, ways that people wouldn't really talk. Um, but those things don't actually affect the the overall narrative. Um, and identifying them exhaustively is a pastime best suited for the most horrible YouTube uh, so-called reviewers. You know those videos? Oh, I, I think one channel is called um, Honest Trailers, and with that horrible dinging for every stupid nitpick that dumbass finds while not paying attention at all to what a movie actually means or, or what the themes are. Just, uh, uh, oh, um, that, that guy wasn't in that shot. Ding. Uh, I wouldn't call them honest trailers so much as fucking annoying and trifling trailers. But anyway, I admit this podcast may be annoying to, to some people, but I would argue it's not trifling, at least. Not really for me to judge, I suppose. All right, so point of comparison number three, why they vanish. Uh, Avengers is totally uncomplicated in this regard. They vanished because Thanos wished it so, and he wished it so because he's depressed. Um, the why of such an event is so meaty, though, and, and so central to the leftovers. Uh, that why, that why people disappeared, why those 2% of people disappeared is never revealed, um, which is a cardinal rule of afterlife shows in general. And we'll see this repeatedly as in future episodes. The more explicit you get about the nature of the afterlife, the shittier your story will be. Now, of course, you can be explicit in what you show. That is, you, you don't have to you know, be limited to pure whiteness or a black void. Uh, for example, in 2001 A Space Odyssey, uh, Dave enters a state of consciousness which is visually defined explicitly. Like it's an ornate kind of... Um, medieval kind of French room that he suddenly finds himself in. It's even a little bit mundane. Um, you know, there's kind of a standard desk and chair in the room, but it simultaneously defies simple explanation and is therefore uh, kind of creepy and interesting rather than maudlin and obvious. Um, there even seem to be certain rules that hold in Dave's experience of space-time, but they take some work to parse out and they don't really answer any root questions about what, what's going on with him. Um, this, this artistic ambiguity is one of the most important qualities in exceptional media. It's a high-wire act, though, which incidentally shows its innate worth because you have to take risks to obtain rewards, and it's hard to do well. 
uh, too much and you're all hot and bothered, tied up in a neat, too neat of a little bow, too little and you are completely unraveled and like cold porridge. Uh, in this episode's terms, Avengers is closer to too hot, too neat, so packed with ham-handed meaning and portrayal that it's constantly boiling over. I would say The Leftovers is close to just right, and a good example of unraveling from too cold and fatally poorly defined might be something like it's hard because abstract TV shows and movies are not, not very well-known or common. So I, I'm i going to have to go to fine art for this one. Let's just say Jackson Pollock, like some, some of his paintings. Well, I don't know, all of his paintings? Anyway, some people think that his work is too unclear and abstract, ambiguous, as to contain any meaning. Uh, I'm not going to really go into whether I agree with that or not, but... Uh, the same thing applies to how we see our own lives. You'll notice that people who are more concerned with a well-ordered and overstructured worldview tend to live in a more exclusive, uh, hierarchical, kind of buttoned-down manner. Uh, the other extreme is is maybe kind of a flossy da, nothing matters, nihilism or solipsism, a uh, perspective so lacking in uh, traditional meaning adds to approach kind of irrelevance. Now, either way, it's the human condition endlessly attempting to give nice meaning to our lives, even if that meaning is the assertion of no meaning. In fact, this podcast is, is a version of my trying to make nice with my life and my little thoughts. But um, it's, I, I'd like to think it's important to note that this podcast and its aim are to highlight and celebrate ambiguity and risk-taking in media. So finally, to close out... And I'm, this is how I plan to close out each episode. Let's tick off a few things about The Good Place in terms of the earlier points I made about narrative weakness. And believe it or not, I'm trying not to be super negative in everything up until this part of the episode. I uh, don't know if I succeeded in that. But uh, The Good Place, I will not hold back. So brace yourself. All right, so there are plenty of crap things about that show that I'm sure we'll get into more and more in future episodes, but I'll just name a couple instances of the show that commit some of the narrative uh, sins that we mentioned before, which are superficial name-dropping, uh, getting narratively boxed in, uh, superpowers, and a, a too explicitness of a story. It's kind, that one's kind of related to the other ones and not really completely independent. All right, so name dropping in The Good Place, superficial name dropping. Maya Rudolph plays a character um, that I would describe as kind of a celestial, near, I guess, immortal uh, angel judge person. And her name is Jen with a G, G-E-N, because she says she came into being when there was only hydrogen in the universe. Get it? Oh, and by the way, here's my sister, Shelium. Oh, she came into... Get out of here. Anyway, so another example is uh, there's a main character called Chidi who is purportedly a philosophy professor who is constantly name-dropping skin-deep philosophical references. Uh, for example, he rushes through a summary of ethics straight out of Philosophy 101. In fact, this professor apparently has only taken introductory, <laughs> introductory philosophy classes and only teaches introductory philosophy classes 
gosh, I didn't even go that far in philosophy, and I find his grasp of it childlike. And well, I've met a lot of philosophy professors; they're not like that. He's like a baby version of a scholar or something. And his main character trait is that he's indecisive. In fact, that's supposedly why he's not a good person and why he like goes to hell initially because he's indecisive. God. Um, if anything, he's more like a person who offers a seminar and deep questions at the local community center and then goes around saying that they're a professor of philosophy. All right, so boxed in narrative, um, there are so many celestial beings on the show who are absolutely incompetent. And of course, this is for the purpose of what passes as humor on the show. And since they're not imaginative enough to really confront the nature of immortal beings, all the immortal beings are just like humans in most every way, uh, including, you know, just, <laughs> yeah, including incompetence. And maybe it's a little funny to imagine that the bureaucracy of the afterlife is as dysfunctional as earthbound bureaucracy. Sure, sure, no, I think that's that's funny, but... In doing so, you, you box yourself in. For example, why do angels and demons, uh, you know, these celestial things, um, need these four human randos to help them fix the afterlife? Are these four protagonists so important as to give angels and demons pause? And, and why now in the year 2016 or whatever? The real reason we're forced to believe that our main characters are the most special humans these angels have ever met is that they failed to frame the story in a way to give themselves room to do anything more interesting. And then they made up for it by paying Ted Danson to have white hair and cackle and be a silly angel to distract us from those many, many shortcomings, uh, which we'll get into more future episodes. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, okay, so superpowers and explicitness. Okay, basically all the celestial beings and uh, stupid robot ladies on the show are supposed to be very powerful magic beings but because their ridiculous powers would break the story they only use them when it's convenient for the story and never when it would detract or kind of short circuit the story uh, for example apparently janet the stupid robot lady is all-knowing full stop it's very hard to have an all-knowing character in a story uh, responsibly even alan moore uh, and uh, watchmen um, there's a character called Dr. Manhattan, who is supposedly all-knowing. And um, as skilled as Alan Moore is, it, you know, Watchmen is far from perfect, but it's incredibly well thought out, you know, especially in comparison to, to The Good Place. And it actively attempts to confront what it would be like to know everything. But in The Good Place, Janet has these convenient holes in a, her all-knowledge, of course, because the story would not work otherwise. So then why make the mistake of saying you know, explicitly saying that, that she knows everything. Well, because it sounds cool and we're meant to think she's great. And we're just going to say it without thinking about the implications to the story that, you know, that's going to cause problems later on. Okay, so I'm going to close out each episode with a solid diss on Michael Schur, the creator of The Good Place. Uh, today's diss is about how he owns the rights to a filmed version of the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. Uh, Infinite Jest, although it's it's one of those things that's um, almost cliche because of how um, special, I guess, hipsters, hipster scholars <laughs> think it is. Um, I, I like the book a lot, you know, and... Um, 
unlike Michael Schur's entire body of work, it does a very good job being using a light touch in the storytelling that gives you just enough, but not too much. And, uh, um, you know, I recently realized there are some patriarchal problems with the book, which hurts me because, like I said, I like it a lot. But, but anyway, that a man like Michael Schur, who does not understand what too much is, owns the rights to a book like that is maddening. It, it's like, you know, if a rich little boy used his parents' wealth to buy the Dead Sea Scrolls, you just know he would not be a good steward. And wouldn't you know it, Michael Schur wrote an episode of Parks and Recreation that he has called an homage to Infinite Jest. And guess what he does? He peppers the episode with, you guessed it, superficial name drops, his favorite thing. Random characters and sight gags that are, once again, basic-ass references to names and places in Infinite Jest. Apparently, he's incapable of engaging in, in any kind of deep thematic uh, work. By the way, I do think Parks and Rec is a better show than The Good Place, if only because at that point in his career, Michael Schur was not allowed to fuck around with stuff he couldn't handle. And I can only hope that just like Tom Hooper may have trouble finding work after directing the movie Cats, I hope Michael Schur will be penalized for The Good Place. Of course, that won't happen, because he has successfully tricked most people into believing it's actually good, when it's really not even as good as Cats. Okay. Well, if you made it this far, thank you and congratulations. Perhaps you were expecting an interview segment, and I'm upset to report I didn't plan for that this season, robbing the podcast of what seemed to be its most popular segment, because it is the segment in which I'm not yakking at you. I'm yakking at someone else. But anyway, uh, so I hope I get to talk to you again soon. Next episode will be about the book Mitch Albom wrote after Tuesdays with Maury. Ooh. Uh, versus an Amazon Prime show called Forever, which incidentally stars Maya Rudolph in an infinitely better role where she is not vapidly named after an element. Until then, remember this. Okay, Caitlin, it's time for dinner. I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Epilogue. The overindulgence in modern superhero film can create what I call geek lash. That is the tendency for fans to claim a piece of media they love and then resist any effort to diversify or add complexity to it. A great example is the fairly recent backlash against di diversity in Marvel and Star Wars movies. These people create edits that entirely eliminate female characters. They find some way to denigrate racial diversity, sometimes, much as we have a problem in the US right now, where people appear to be clinging to uniformity or what they perceive as the great past at the cost of equity. So. Each episode, I'm going to try to come up with a specific kind of person that can result from an overindulgence in the lesser media of that episode.